This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? I'm ready, man. All right. Welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader. And before we get into it with my friend, Joe Maynard, let's just do a little bit of business, okay? Guys, you got to you got to put something on your knives and your wood and your hammers and your handles and your and your stainless, I mean, your Damascus and your carbon and all that. Get yourself some Axe Wax, would you? Axe Wax is all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, for your handles, for your wood, for your hammers. I just put some on my new hammer. I made this forges new hammer out. I love it. I charred the handle and I threw on some Axe Wax. Feels great. And if you go to axewax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get 10% off your entire order. And if you're in the UK, go to UKKnifesupplies.com and give Toby a little bit of business and make sure you get more than just some Axe Wax because he's taking Full Blast 10 to get that 10% off, as is Australia's NordicEdge.com.au. They're taking Full Blast 10. And if you're in the EU, KnifeMaterial.at is taking Full Blast 10 for 10% off your Axe Wax. So go get yourself some Axe Wax. Stop playing around. The next thing is I'm getting a lot of messages from people who are playing around in the DMs. They're doing business in the DMs. If you want, uh, you know, like you're selling something and you say, PM me for pricing, DM me for pricing. Guys, this is, this is such a waste of your time. You've spent so much time trying to create something and to build something and to have something that you love. To go into the dirty DMs and have these tire kickers and time wasters, time vampires sucking away your time it's not right so what i want you to do is i want you to go to akinteractive.com slash full blast it's in the show notes the direct link is in the show notes you will fill out the paperwork and andreas klonier is going to figure out what you need maybe you need a new website maybe you need your website fixed maybe you need a little consultation maybe you need some logo redesign maybe you need some graphics done for you're going to do a convention and you need a tabletop. You need the graphics done. He'll take care of that. akinteractive.com slash full blast. He's a maker making stuff and he's making websites for people and he's helping people. He's done a great job so far. Andreas Kalani is the man. He, know, he talks your language. He's going to give you, he's going to make sure, he's going to get you back in the shop and not wasting your time dealing with these people because some of these people i mean they're just relentless they're relentless they want more they don't want your business they don't want your stuff they want your time and sometimes your time is worth more than that okay so get yourself a website and stop fooling around last but not least i have to thank trojan horse forge if you're on instagram that's trojan underscore horse underscore forge they make the stable rail knife finishing vice this thing is amazing i used it today i've ground down and, and hand set in a nine inch chef knife and having the stable rail knife finishing vice was such a, a it was so great it was a luxury and i know what you're thinking well knife finishing vice is just for handles well that's not the case when you get the stable rail knife finishing vice, it comes in this bomb-proof box and is filled with plate, aluminum plates and bolts and pins and rubber gaskets and rubber protection. And it's amazing. And what you can do is, is you can it'll allow you to hand sand your knife and it'll provide some s- stability to your distal taper or your flat knife or if you have a uh, if you have a uh, integral knife it'll support that it'll support a kukri or a curved knife 
this thing is awesome. And then you take off the plates and then you turn it around. Next thing you know, you're sculpting your handles and you're in business. This thing is awesome. Take away all those all those two by fours you've been making fixtures with and just put them in the put them in the fire, ladies and germs. You don't need them anymore. Because this is the best. So go to Trojanhorseforge.com, fill out the paperwork to get on the newsletter. And I'm telling you why. This is such a hot ticket item. You can't just buy it now. So you got to get yourself on the newsletter. And then as they come out and you get closer to being done, the batches, you'll get a message saying, all right, get on board. And then you can get one. Now, if you're saying that's a lot of money, I don't have a lot of money. Well, they're figuring out ways in which to make it easier for you. They use a payment system that allows you to pay in installments. So it's not as big of a bite. But I'm telling you this. This is the number one, my number one favorite. uh, I don't even think it's of knife finishing vice. It's of complete hand sanding knife finishing fixture. Thing is awesome. So go get yourself that. Thanks again to the guys. Uh, for sending me this out. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, I, I mean, it's it's awesome. So thank you very much, Trojan Horse Forge. Woo! All right. We're back. And I cannot thank my next guest enough for coming on. Joe Maynard is a fascinating guy. He served this country well. He's a, he's a former uh, Black Hawk helicopter pilot. He's a knife maker. He is a important and inspiring person to people trying to make it in life. Joe, how are you? Good morning, buddy. I actually was sitting here starting to sweat when you said those things. Why? I don't know, man. It's just weird. It's it's weird having people say things like that about you. Well, you know what I mean? it, here's 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 what here's it's interesting because I've known about you for a for, I guess a couple of years, and I know mm-hmm. that you've been traveling the country, learning from other knife makers. And I think I don't remember who mentioned. You know what? Who mentioned Ashley. to you to me? Ashley Childs. Ashley That's Childs right. mentioned you to me, and then Josh. You were on the Josh Smith uh, show, the Josh Smith podcast, which number one. Thanks, Josh. Friend of the show, friend of mine. I'm, I love mm-hmm. Josh. He he screwed me by doing such a good interview with you that it made <laughs> me have to work harder for this one, which is fine. But it's just like I always, when somebody does a very good interview with someone, it, it always irritates me because I know I have to work harder, which always slightly annoys me. And that's always a compliment. So, Josh, if you want before, if you want to just stop this, ladies and gentlemen, and hear a linear a great linear podcast of the of the origin story of Joe Maynard, the Josh Smith Show. I think what did you do in February, something like that? Last February, yeah, it was last February. It's That's perfect. Right. I mean, it's a very well done linear podcast of your life. That's really, really odd. cool. That is so odd. And and for anybody listening, I did not tell him to use that word, but just remember the word origin. Okay. Well, that's see the, the here's Joe. The, here's the problem with this podcast. I'm trying to set it up for the listener, so there always is going to be an origin story. But that was so good. It's just like, what am I going to do? I have you say the same stories over and over again? I'm not doing that. Exactly. Just post a link and be done with it. Well, we're gonna. I'm gonna. I have some things that I have some things. I, I that that interview was very very interesting, and I have a lot. I have a lot to add to to it. So sure. if you haven't heard it, definitely go listen to that. Stop at this. Go listen to that, and go support Joshua. <laughs> so you just came back from Winter Strong. I did. I just got what? back 
What was uh, that? that? Holy crap, dude. Honestly, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't lying when I said I didn't have the vocabulary to, to put into words the emotional uh, impact that this had on me. But, I, but I, as far as what it was, so Sornex, you know, conditioning equipment, workout gear, was founded by Bert Soren's dad. And it's almost like a folklore to me because I never thought I'd actually be there or see any of any of those folks that were there that I, I look up to, you know. Um, but it's a brainchild of Bert Soren to put all his favorite people together in the activities that he has grown attached to, you know, outdoors, uh, survival, uh, weapons, archery, guns, knives, you know, all that kind of stuff and get the, his favorite people all together hmm. to celebrate, including, uh, cooking and, and barbecue and just camaraderie and then, and competition. I mean, shit, there's even a competition in there, which we'll have to get into a little bit later. Remind me, don't let me oh, forget. I won't. Don't worry. So he makes, so Sornex is like weightlifting equipment and stuff like that? Right. There's, and it's a ton of weightlifting equipment. If you follow Derek or, or Brandon, Lily, or any of those guys, you'll see that's the equipment they use. And I've, and I've known these guys and I, I've even talked to Brandon. I'm like, Hey, how, what would it take to put this piece of equipment on the side of my trailer so I can work out on the road? You know, just stuff like that. And we, and it's all, I mean, I'm, the headquarters, the Sornex headquarters, where we had our first night, kind of a dinner meeting of family gathering. It was, it was insane. It was like walking into, it was like you're walking into a Gold's Gym. If Gold's Gym was the equivalent of, I don't know, a lowercase letter compared to an essay at, at the college level. I mean, it was ridiculous. So everyone was, everyone was stacked up. Oh man. There were so many people there that like, my neck started hurting. <laughs> and I, I wa well, literally walk around and you know there's and there's and all the knife makers that were there i knew ahead of time which was awesome because i didn't feel out of place but it was also intimidating because i even said this before i got there i'm the low man on the knife totem pole so i can't lose i'm going to show up and no matter what i'm going to come out of here a winner like i'm going to learn something i'm going to have fun and it doesn't you know i i don't have to try and prove myself or establish myself anywhere because you can't go anywhere but up you know what I mean? And I was just, I had such a blast, man. The whole, the whole last 24 hours was such a trip. Mareko, Mareko and I stayed, he, he lit the forge at midnight on the last night. I had worked my tail off forging and just making sure everybody got what they wanted and, and telling people stories and interviewing people until midnight. Are you still there? Yeah, of course. Holy crap. My computer just went black and I thought I lost you. No, you, no, no, no. You're fine. Keep going. Okay. So anyway, so about midnight, Everybody's winding down, you know, and uh, Neil's sitting there. Everybody's just chilling. And all of a sudden, Mareko takes the forge that Vegas Forge built for me for the road and just lights it up and grabs a piece of steel and throws it in there. And, it, and that's when it hit me. I was like, holy crap. It's just, uh, it's just us? Hell yes. I, so I said, Mareko, take that steel out of there. And I guess he thought maybe he thought... I don't know what he thought. Maybe he thought he was stealing something from me. You know, that's, so I said, take that out of there. I ran over to my toolbox, grabbed a couple pieces of Damascus billets that were just layered. And I, and I threw them in there. I said, we're, if we're going to do it, might as well just go out big, you know? So we stayed up till, I don't know, five thirty, six o'clock in the morning, just pounding steel. And a couple of newer knife makers came over and just hung out with us. And we were doing 
sipping and flipping videos and we were just having cracking on each other and just having such a good time. And that last part right there pretty much was like the cherry on top because I went to my bed. Uh, I got like two hours sleep and then I just got up, worked all day to help clean up and pack up everything. And I left at about four in the afternoon and got home late Sunday night. You know, it was just, it was ridiculous. So, but your original question, I'm sorry, your original no, question, I, I'm super excited about it. I just, that's why I said I can't put it into words, but your original question is, what is it? And after I told you, so I'll pick up from where I left off with Bert. So he puts all these people together and it's all about surrounding yourself with better people. And he has this mantra, if you will, thin air, deep water. And when he said that and started explaining it to me, it was like I was sitting with, with Gandhi, you know, not that he's a cult leader or any of that kind of stuff, but it was just like, holy cap, that makes total sense. So the words that he's using are the words that I couldn't, I can never find. You always want to surround yourself with better people. So if you're climbing a mountain and the air's getting thinner and thinner, that thin air, and you look around, you're not going to see very many people. Because the people that are working to climb that ladder are the people that you're still with. Yeah. And then with deep water, if you're going to do something, you can hang out in the shallow end all day long and you can just have fun and enjoy the sun. But the deeper you go, the darker it gets. And when you get into deep, deep water, and I've been into deep, deep water, it's black. You don't see anybody. You don't see anything. But you've got to trust everything that you've ever done and everything you've ever learned to get you through. And it's just like, holy crap, man. That's a, that, that expression also reminds me of the one that I used to like a lot, which is don't be the smartest person in the room. Oh, I never have that problem. <laughs> Come on, man. Come on. I wasn't trying to set you up for that one, but, but it's, it's, it is true. I mean, once you're, once you're surrounded by people who, you know, you want to, you don't want to be, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're, you're you know, it's, it's, you're never going to, you're never going to grow. But I, I'm fascinated by your story about you and Mar so I had heard about Sornix from probably through Josh and mm -hmm. I know that last year, or the year before, Neil Kamamura was invited, and he was doing forging demonstrations. I know uh, Jason Knight was there, and Josh was there, and it sounds like that they invited more people, which is great. Mm -hmm. I, I, your story with Moreco really resonated with me because when I was doing Maker Camp with my friends, the Modern Forge, uh, John Ariani and Cliff and and Jesse, and and we were Carrie, we were having some fun. We didn't have our kids weren't around. We didn't have to. There wasn't you know. We didn't have to, there wasn't a bedtime or there wasn't like, we're, I can't go. I got to, or there wasn't a weekday. It was, and we were forging and my mentality was, well, if I'm going to forge and I'm going to forge, you know, I will forge a pair of tongs by hand. Right. Probably till like, you know, 12 o'clock at night. And I was like, I am taking advantage of being around this fire without any, without any, like, I got to go somewhere, or I got to be somewhere, or I got to hard out. Or, and there was this real feeling of camaraderie because we were, we understood and appreciated the value of that, you know, free time. But it wasn't free time because, you know, you have a certain amount of time you have to be with these people. Right. And you're trying to, like, capture as much as possible. I don't, I couldn't go to five o'clock in the morning, but I know, I know that feeling of, like, this is being around other people and being inspired by other people and kind of working alongside other people late at night. There is something very like, it's almost essential. It's almost like this moment of like, I have to seize this or it won't happen again. 
You, know? you are absolutely right. I had a moment a couple of years ago where I didn't seize the moment. And until this weekend, no kidding, I, until this weekend, I've always thought about that as the closest thing that I would have to regret in right. my knife, in my knife, you know, life, I guess it's, you could say. The hammer ins are oh. those moments, a hammer in where you can actually like be around other people and you mm-hmm. might not learn something, but just being around them and kind of like getting that energy. It's like a communal energy. Right. About it is year. one of those things that you can't really explain until you have a relationship with some other person and then you're just like, all right, let's make this happen. I mean, exactly. it is like, it is intoxicating and you do feel a sense of urgency that I'm about to go back to my life and I might not have this opportunity again. Oh, I, I can't, I just, it's, it's, it's surreal. A couple of years ago, I had that moment where I was, I was sitting with four or five knife makers at a friend's house. Neil, Neil was there and everyone's forging or we're just, and I'm thinking, oh, this is what it's about, right? Everybody's just having a good time and we're going to forge some stuff. I was so intimidated, so insecure that I actually pulled my steel out of the forge laid it on the ground, and I went over and started making mini knives. And that's actually where I, that's, that's really where I started making mini knives, like, regularly. Hmm. It's because of the insecurities. And so Why? When I, it, was just, it was just one of those things where, you know what, I was so good and, and on top of the world for so many years that I don't know that I'm going to be able to make it right now with, with this kind of talent around me. So... When when we set up the forge, I unpacked the trailer. Everything's out. Um, Neil was sitting there, and he had his you know he had his vest set there, and it's it's like the Thor, the hammer of Thor, or something sitting there. And you're like, dang, that's that's the vest. And so when Neil walks over, and he's like, I said something about forging, and, and Neil says, Oh, I'm I'm the only one that's gonna be forging because it's the demo day, you know. And he's like, I'm the only one that's gonna be forging. And then he looked at me and he goes, and you and Mareko. And I was like, <gasps> I kind of took my breath like, holy shit. Getting ready to have a hundred people watching three of us forge and one of them's me. Okay, here we go. And I did, I'm telling you, I put everything I had into that next three or four hours of demo and talking about what we're doing. And there was times where Mareko would come over and I actually just saw a post with him and I standing there. And that was that moment where he was like, look, you're doing great. Stand like this, put your arm right here. It'll help you. And it, and it and helped. And I, and I, not one moment in that entire demo, did I have any insecurities and to top it all off, I finished forging a blade to shape within 10 minutes of both of them. And we, and then we all quenched together. And wow. I thought that was like, I was like, if, if I'm ever going to make it, if I never make it, doesn't matter. This is what it feels like. And it, it really felt like that for me. And I told them that, but I don't really think it, it stuck just because of, you know, things that people think about you or me or whoever. But when I, when I, I, I remember that feeling thinking, that's it. If I never make it, I've made it right now because I held my own. I, you know, and it was awesome. It, the, the, there's one thing about in, in knife making that just kind of it bothers me is the sense of competition. Because we're all on these different paths. And there's, when I say competition, I mean like, there's this sense that we're, we're supposed to be at a certain level. Or there's this sense that we need to be better than this person. Or there's this sense that, there's this sense, there's this sense. And that's, it's, it, the hardest part is to separate yourself out and say, look, I'm on this journey. 
and I'm going to be there when I'm there. I'm going to get it when I get it. Right. The longer I've done this, and I've done knife making, probably, I don't know, I don't count. I, you know what? I don't count anymore. I had a f- story, I told this story a long time ago, a while ago, that I went to school with these guys, and there was this one guy who was having regular sex, and we were, and he was telling us about it, but then he was counting the times, and then it was with the same girl, and he'd come in every day, and he'd be like, uh, 86 times now. The next day, 87 <laughs> times. And we're like, okay, all right, you're having sex. What, you don't have to tell us. We don't want to know. We don't want to know every single time. Right. And it, it was always one of those things that made me, made me be like, I'm not, what am I counting? What, 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 what do I give a shit about? You know, who cares? And I'll never forget thinking that. And I stopped, I stopped counting almost everything. Like, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't, it happens when it happens. And I'm far more interested in having firmer understanding than to worry about my pecking order. And right. I think that that's the biggest problem in most hobbies or more most pursuits is you're trying to un, you're, you don't want you're undermining yourself by wondering where you are in regards to other people. And I hate it. I, right. It bothers me. It bothers me that people get nervous and they get weird and they're not unable to enjoy you know, the process of just learning. I get that. I, I completely, I, I kind of agree. I agree with you about 50%. I don't see a lot of the competition other than, and the, you know, the who's better than who and how, how much better this person is, except from the people buying the knives or the collectors, that kind of thing within the knife community. I have, I don't know that I've ever ran into other than one time that I just won't get into where somebody was like, Put, putting everybody in rack and stacking everyone. Yeah. And I was just like, man, that's just, I, I, I love this community because nobody ever was doing that. It's a very great community, but let me tell you, as the back office guy at Knife Talk who gets all the DMs, there's a lot of questions that come in and say, what do I do? This guy makes shitty knives. Not, you know, not a particular, they refer to people as these are shitty knives or those are shitty knives. And it always makes me feel a little bit like, I, I mean, I, I'm still, you know, I, I consider myself more of a more interested in blacksmithing than bladesmithing, to be honest with you. And, and I'm still more like the, any kind of stuff I like to do. I want to go back to more basic stuff just because I, I still feel like the need to have a firmer understanding. And I, and I, and I just get the I just get I feel like pe- I, there's an expression that comparison is the thief of joy. Right. And I really do believe that's a thousand percent true. Yeah. And I think what happens is is it allows you worrying about your pecking order or worrying about where you are. It 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 stops you from enjoying the 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 journey that you're on. I I agree. Um there was a couple times in in my journey that I'm still on that I was I got backed into a corner where I had I I started evaluating myself compared to other people. And one of those times was when someone actually sent me a DM that just said Dude, you make shit knives. And I wrote back, cool, thanks. I was actually, and I really was thanking him because I took all the knives that I had just shown and I I actually named them my shit knife collection and sold them fast as shit. That's so antisocial. I know. It was was rude, but what are you going to do? I just don't understand why people can't be more encouraging. I just don't understand it. Like, we have such a short amount of time on this planet. What's the point of wasting your time just being a dick? I just don't yeah. get it. I'll never understand it. No, I never, don't. never understand. All right, so back to you. So you're back from you're back from Sornix. Mm-hmm. 
You drive this truck with this trailer. Yes. That makes me very anxious because it's so. I've been thinking a lot about you. <laughs> that you're, the Mobile Forge is an incredible. It's an incredible piece of equipment. It's incredible. Like it's almost like its own ecosystem, this own cosmos. You have your own universe yes. that you're carrying behind you. It makes me. It makes me anxious because it just looks like it's this massive. It's this massive, beautiful mobile event. Yeah, I went. Well, so I'll I'll back up when I first because of how I got started and we won't get into all that because, you know, we, like you said, go listen to Josh. Well, we got to we got to get into a little bit of it because okay. I have a theory. I got to spring on you. All right. Well, I got to tell you, um, I got into a after I retired and I and I, I started taking uh, contract work. And I, I was traveling the world and and I I came back and I had a long story short, I had a two broken vertebrae. And I'm sitting there after surgery thinking, oh, man, I'm, I was on top of the world and now I'm not. And everything's, you know, nothing's the same. I, I, I bet my wife doesn't even look at me like she used to. Like, I'm not her hero. My kid doesn't look at me like a hero anymore. And that was like, that was part of what I craved. Not that it was, uh, not that it was narcissistic. Like, it was just, it was just, I felt that I couldn't, I had this feeling I couldn't shake. And I got to a really, really bad place in myself. And I talked to my wife about it and I wouldn't pick fights with her, but I just, I was no fun to be around because I just wasn't me. And I told her one night that I said, babe, I, I just can't do this. I'm going to go end this. Uh, you're going to hear, you're going to hear a gunshot and I don't want you to come out there by the, I'll be, I'll be in the barn. Don't, don't come out there. Just call the police and let them take care of it. And I went out there and I remember thinking, oh, I want an open casket. So I put, I literally, I put the gun to my chest. My my Beretta, my nine mil, and I pulled the trigger, and click. It was the first time that that my Beretta has ever misfired. I have that round sitting right here, busted primer, no no pop, and you know I immediately just start shaking and breaking down and crying and and I try not to tell this story too much. One because I don't think people are really ready to hear it. And or want to hear it, and two because I don't want to ever get to the point where it's just a blase conversation about it. Right? You know, it's just it's just not fair to anybody who struggles. So I went back and I I broke down and I started just I just laid there with my wife all night long, and honestly, my bride held me all night long and just let me be me. And so a couple months later, uh, I was going to the aquarium, Georgia Aquarium, to go scuba dive with the whale sharks and. Andrea was coming with me and we went out there and I called, I called a friend of mine, I called Zach and I said, Hey buddy, I'm going to be at the Georgia Aquarium dying with the whale sharks, bring the kids out. Well, he came on out and we just start, got to talking about our, you know, catching up because we, we kind of drifted for a couple of years and, and he says, we need to start hanging out more. I said, absolutely. Well, a month after that, it was Super Bowl Sunday in Atlanta. And he said, Hey, why don't you come out Super Bowl with me? I was, Oh, okay. Of course. It's a Super yeah. Bowl. It's an experience, whatever. So I went out there. Super Bowl was great. Um, the next night, I'm, I'm in the shop, and, and I'm looking through this book. Laura Zara had a book that she wrote about knife making. And Laura, was, Laura happened to be there. And I said, and she's like, you know Wait, what? Laura was where was Laura? There was a few of us at Zach's house just to kind of hang out. Okay. And Laura said, Hey, 
you know, Zach said, Hey, why don't you just ask the Lord to help you make a knife? And, and then I'll be back and, you know, I'll just hang out in the shop with you guys. So I started making a knife and it was about three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. And Zach's, Zach looks at me and goes, Hey man, it's like three thirty, four o'clock. I need to go to bed. And I said, Holy shit. I had, are you serious? And I looked, it was, and it'd been like eight or nine hours. And I don't remember time passing at all. I just remember sitting there and creating and doing something with my hands and, and focused on trying to make this piece of metal into something awesome. And I realized right then that that was, that that was the moment that I was going to be doing this for the next 40 years. It took me 40 years to find knife making and I was going to do it for another 40. So when I got home, I took my woodworking shop and I started making knives out of primitive weapons or primitive tools. And I created, you know, I used, and I used Laura's book and I made a little fire brick forge out of two bricks that you hollow out. And next thing I know, uh, these, this, these primitive tools that turned into a knife making shop became primitive grind. And I said, man, what? And, and so people found out in my town, they found out here in Tennessee, like, Oh, you're making knives now. Let me come check it out. And they would come in and hang out. Well, over the next couple of months, people were just dropping by just to hang out in my shop and watch me and try and make a knife for themselves. And some of those guys would stay here till about six o'clock in the morning. The sun's coming up. And then they would say, man, I didn't, I haven't thought of anything other than this. And one of those guys had been in prison for vehicular manslaughter because he was going to commit suicide and got drunk and hit a motorcycle before he could run off the bridge. And I'm like, Ugh. holy shit, man. I didn't know that about him, but he, he checked his, e like everybody walks to my shop, checks their ego at the door and we have fun and it's all honest, honest conversation. I, I don't have a couch in here. I don't have a therapist, but we just talk and we just make stuff. And when it, and when he left, I said, you know what? What if, so I actually sent Laura a message the next day and said, Laura, what if I made a mobile forge and travel the country to be able to do what I'm doing, but do it for everybody? And she's like, that's badass. Fuck yeah. I want to see it. So I started designing it and it took me a year and I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell people because I was worried that somebody with a whole lot of money was just going to go, Ooh, that's a good idea. Boom. Put it together and beat me to the punch. I know that's right. kind of selfish, but I don't care. No, that's fine. So when I was done with it, she was the first person I sent my, I sent my pictures to and said, boom, guess what this is? The side of it folds down. It's a, it's got a mobile forge stage and I outfit it to, I outfit it based on the event that I'm going to, or what I'm going to do. Now people might think, oh man, that is so lucrative. Hey, I'm not a business. I'm the worst businessman in the world. So if you know how to make that a profit or make that a business, by all means, let me know. Because I've been doing this out of pocket for the last year, year and a half, whatever it is. And all I do is I outfit it and I go around and I'll do events I get invited to certain things that I wanted to go to anyway and bring it. I'm going to do it. I, 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 at Josh's house, Josh was like, Hey, we're auctioning off that knife that me and Laura and Brandon made. And we got all these vets coming in. I said, I will be there. And, and I'll wrap this up with this part. So this is how I know that the mobile forge is working. We're in Montana and, and I'm, I'm not going to say any names, but I'm in Montana with a, a bunch of vets. And one of those guys just happens to have a, you know, a pet with him that has been by his side for years. Well, by the end of the weekend, we're sitting there drinking a glass of bourbon about three o'clock in the morning. We're just talking and his, and his service animal is across the room under, under a chair. 
And he said, that is like the first time that, that, that she's ever been away from me. And I was like, well, maybe you're comfortable. Maybe this is what you like. And he just happens to be the guy that was, that fell in love with making knives and forging immediately. And he must've done six or seven blades that weekend. No, they weren't perfect, but it didn't matter. They were, they were just different from when they started. That's all that mattered. Well, Thanksgiving night, about three months later, I get a phone call that he's, I won't get into details, but basically he's on the edge. It's about to be over for him. And it was like rally the troops. So I started making phone. I made phone calls to Canada, to a friend of mine up there to say, I need some help. Who do you have in this area? I made phone calls. I called Josh right away. I I mean, we made phone calls and you know what? The guy's alive and well, I'm on the phone with him nonstop for about two or three days. He's doing well. He's getting help, but he's he's still struggling. And I actually just petitioned today or signed up for the black rifle coffee fund to help him. And I don't, and he doesn't even know this is happening, but I said, Hey, and I talked to the black rifle coffee guys at uh, winter strong. And I said, Hey, listen, I want to help this guy. He wants to knife make, he wants to make knives, but financially he just can't do it. And I talked to uh, pops knife supply and Alan put together a package for a full knife starter kit, basically minus the grinder. And so I talked to a braids over at, um, Winter strong. And I said, Hey guys, this is what I'm trying to do. And piece by piece, basically I just, I sent it last night. I stayed up till about midnight typing all this stuff out and requesting funds to get him. And it's not a lot of money. It's like, it was, you know, it's, it's not a lot of money. I'll just leave it there. And I said, I'll cover every other dime and I'm going to drive all this equipment to him and I'll set up his shop because you know what? It's working. It worked with that one guy because I had a mobile forge there and I was the one he called. I said, if that can happen, it can happen again and again. And now do I want it to happen? Hell no. I don't want someone calling me, telling me they're about ready to, to shoot themselves, but it did. And he had the guts to call me and I could have just said, Oh man, that sucks. I got to go to bed. It's, it's late. But, but if I'm going to sit here and do this, if I'm going to jump into the water, I'm going to jump in both feet and I'm going to go deep. You know what I mean? That's, that's just the way it's going to be. So I get home, what, Sunday night, Monday morning, I'm unpacking the trailer, getting everything ready. I've got a, so many things to do this week, including make two knives for a charity event that I won't even be here for. I'm recording a video so they can play me talking about these knives while I'm gone. My wife's going to do it for me. And then I'm hitting the road Sunday. I'm driving out to California. I get home, I'll be home for a week, then I'm driving back out to Texas and Arizona. Then it's Denver, California, and Washington. You know, I, I just, I don't see how I cannot do this. If it helped me, it saved my life, then it's, and, it, and I know that it's already helped one person in, in a year or whatever, then I'm going to keep doing it. It's, it's such an emotional story, both of them. I mean, what you went through, your personal struggles, and I, I mean, I just don't know what your wife was thinking when, when you said, don't go out into the, I mean, did she, did well, you, just to go back to the story, I mean, I obviously won't go into it, but I'll, I mean, it's I'll like, tell you, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, no, at first I, I listen, was, listen but, before, before I go on, I just want you to know how much you mean to me and how much you mean to a lot of people and how much mental health is a problem in this country that is just not being 
helped. We're not we're not helping each other mentally with with the the feelings that we have and the and the way to cope with real right not mental health problems, but like being able to cope with life problems. Right. Well, and I'm, I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you do for a lot of people. Well, I really Trust appreciate me. you saying that. Um, when I when I told my wife that what I was about to go do. This is how I knew that I was lost, that I was broken, gone, whatever, whatever words you want to use. This is how I knew. She looked at me and she said, I understand. That was it. Wow. She didn't say, oh, no, please don't. Or good. You're an asshole. She didn't say any of that stuff. She had seen it. I mean, she had she lived with it with me for months on end to the point where. She knew that she knew that I wasn't even in there anymore, you know? And, and actually shortly after this, like I never thought that mobile forge was going to be anything big. And I, and I kind of still don't, I think it's just more, I'm just going to do it until I run out of money. And then it's going to sit there until I make more money somehow. But it's, it's about six months or seven months after the mobile forge started, you know, and I tried to document as much of it as I can with live videos or whatever, but I was, I got reached out to by a couple of guys that I had met before, um, Dave and Sam, you know, hiking with the Viking and bushcraft bodybuilder, who's actually Sam strong, I guess now, but they said, Hey, we want to do the survival trip up in the Olympic national forest to raise money for mental health. I was like, dude, I'm in. So Dave is the guy to, to secure sponsorships and get gear sent and all that kind of stuff. I drove up there. Um, we hiked into the Olympic National Forest, 20 degrees below zero, four feet of snow with a backpack and basically backpack and, and some gear that was on, that we'd brought in our bags. And we did it for a week. And, and leading up to this point, we sold T-shirts, Shelter from the Storm 2020 or, yeah, I guess it was 2021 because it was, it was January of this last year. And all the money that we made from shirts, we donated it to a mental health organization. And then all the people that bought shirts were automatically entered into receiving the gear that we had been donated to do the trip. So we didn't get anything out of it. We didn't make anything. And it was completely for other people. And that is exactly what I want to do. And I'm, and I'm glad that there's others out there like Dave and Sam who, who asked me to do it. I mean, I could have easily just said no, or, or they could have found somebody else who was way more popular to do it. But it's just, I don't know. It's just one of those things where I don't have the money to be philanthropist. Right. But I have the heart to be altruistic. See, you know what but I, mean? I think, I think that this is a higher calling for you than money. I think that what you have done for people and the, just the, the willingness to be helpful and to go out and be there for people and, and show them what a wonderful thing, you know, forging is and knife making is you, you got a higher calling going on. So like, you know, I, I, it's, it is, it is amazing. I, I've said for a long time that what making in general is, this is, you know, we talk to a lot of makers and I just know so many makers and I know their, their motivations and I know my motivations. There's something about, and going back to what we were talking about originally in terms of like your pecking order and stuff like that, there's something about the concept of making where you have an idea in your head 
and you have a specific technique that you've learned and you execute it and you create something physical that represents a part of your life at that time. And it is, there is like this, I don't like to say validation, but there's this sense of like, I usually, I flippantly say, I flippantly say is I do it and it makes, when I make something, it makes me feel less like human garbage. And it's like, <laughs> it is one of those things that like, okay. you having the ability to like manifest something in your idea, an idea that you have and you'll be able to manifest it and create something physical and have a, you know, like a physical object that, that shows your humanity. Right. There's something that's you can't express to people like that. And, and, and I would think, for, especially for mental health, and a lot of makers, a lot of makers who start doing whatever, and then they start off in their shop, and then all of a sudden they get the idea, maybe they should make, I, could, I love doing this, maybe I can make some money out of it. They're mostly solitary people. Right. And to be able to like find something that's, that gives you a sense of purpose there's yeah. nothing, there's no drug like it. No, you know? not, not at all. My, my dad told me a long time ago, and I've, I've said this to people, and then I heard it in a speech from one of my commanders in the military as he, was, as he was leaving command. My dad told me, he said, you are defined by your humanity. He told right. me that so long ago, and I remembered it thinking, man, that just, you, I mean, it says so much in so few words that it's so easy to be able to just say that and the people that get it will understand what that means. And, and now it's, you know, I don't, I don't understand. Like, I don't, I don't understand all the fighting and all the bullshit that goes on in this world sometimes. Because number one, I've seen a lot of it and I don't care to see it anymore. And number right. two, I left that world. Now there's a time to fight. Yes. And there's a time to, to just not run and hide, but there's a time to just smile and hug. So. Maybe that sounds a little bit, you know, pansy or whatever, but I, I'm, I don't have a middle gear and you mix all those three together. This is what I'm going to do. I'm not, I'm not going to fight unless <clears throat> my, you threaten my family and I'm not going to fight if you just push me around a little bit because I don't have that middle gear. So I will end up being calm. I'm, I'm either, you know, idle or I'm wide open. And right. I feel like sometimes a lot of people say that like that. Oh, that's how I am. But I don't truly believe that they, they understand what that means. So the longer I can keep myself doing what I, what I want to do, which is seeing smiles on people's faces, then I'm going to keep doing it. I mean, when it, you talk about uh, these people, Oh man, I want to make some money make, you know, I'm going to sell these little bottle openers and start making some money. And if that's a hustle, if that's how they're trying to make a living, I hope they succeed. I really do. But if it's just like a, oh, this one that I made was cool and somebody said it was cool because they're my friend. I'm going to try and make a, you know, a million dollars off this idea. I don't, I don't really believe that's the case. You know, I give away probably four or five knives for every one that I sell. I haven't sold, I haven't sold shit since the first week of December when my website opened. Nothing. Except for two shirts from the guy that you saw in the background who's been awesome by the way and he's been helping me out and if we get a chance i will tell you who he is but he he's just dropping by to help me today because he knows that i am so busy trying to get out there and get back on the road to do things for other people and he's like dude i want to come help you you just point and i'll execute i said all right then and he's helping me offload the rest of my small stuff out of the trailer so that i can reload it for the next trip 
when when talking about the idea of feeling you know satisfaction from something mm-hmm. take me back take me back you you grew up in you grew up in California or something like that and and then you ended up you were jo- athlete and then you end up joining the army roundabout way mm-hmm. joining the army right and you became a, a black hawk helicopter pilot mm-hmm Take me back. I would think, I would think based on the idea of satisfaction, I would think that learning how to become a Blackhawk, a, pel- a helicopter <clears throat> pilot, and then being proficient enough to carry out a particular mission, regardless of whatever it is, right. is you do get that de- same similar type of satisfaction of validating the person that you are, the ability to learn uh, use technique and execute what you're supposed to be doing. Oh yeah. You, you get a mission and there are so many facets to it that unless you're doing it, you just, anybody doing operational stuff can, can, will know what I'm talking about, but imagine having, Oh, I'm going to cook dinner, right? Just imagine I'll relate it to dinner, but there's right. so many things to cooking that dinner or having that mission or taking out that, guy that people don't understand. So when you, when you finally get it all together and you, you have the skill and the mindset and you're in that zone to where you can, you won't burn a single thing on the stove. The bread is not scorched. The peas are undercooked or not undercooked and everything is perfect. And you get that perfect meal. That's what it's like every single time you land, whether you're going out to drop someone off or you're going out to just wreck someone's day. That is such a great comparison because there is something about cooking where you got a pile of different things going on at the Mm -hmm. same time. It all comes out at the same time. You feel like a total champion. So I would imagine that it's an awesome as an awesome. uh, I mean, I'm not, I never went, I'm a little older than you, but I mean, I I never, I, I, there was a chance. I I wanted my father served in uh, world war two. His brother was on the beach of Normandy. And then I remember as a senior, uh, Desert Storm One. Mm-hmm. I was the only person in my class that said that I that everybody in my class was saying, "Let's bomb them, let's bomb them, let's bomb them." And our teacher was a Vietnam vet. And we were talking about serving and stuff like that. And I was the only one in my class to say I would enlist because my father told me that's what I did. World War uh, the, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. He enlisted the second, the day after, like many, many Americans. Mm-hmm. And he forged his mother's name because he was too young. His mother was a, a conscientious ob- objector. Uh, and, you know, I said, if, if the, the t- time came, I would, I would, I was the only one in my class to say I wouldn't, I would never, I would, I, I was never calling for it, but I was never supportive and against, but I felt that my personal duty, my dad refused to let me go regardless, blah, blah, blah. I have no understanding except for people that I hang out with who are in the military. What I, what I guess what I want to know is take a standard day right. any kind of day you want. I would imagine that when you're a, 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 a combat helicopter pilot, there's no fly by the seat of your pants in regards to you have a very specific schedule. Is that right? I'm, it depends. You may, yes, I'll just say, Overall, yes, you have a very specific schedule there. You have a showtime, you have a, hey, we need to pre, once you, it's a showtime says, you know, nine o'clock for a 12 o'clock takeoff. And if, and if I'm the AMC or the instructor for the day or instructor pilot, 
or the instrument examiner or whatever you are, you're going and you're in charge of that aircraft or crew. You're going to say, all right, guys, let's meet at the aircraft at this time. So they're going to, you had trusted them to go take care of everything they need to get ready for their aircraft. And you are going to do the same or make sure that it gets done to your aircraft. And then you're going to meet up together and you're going to brief and you're going to take off and go do your mission. But as far as seat of the pants, that happens only on occasion. And it's not really, it's not like you'd see in the movies where it's, Oh, we're just going to go out and just hang out. No, you're either going out and looking for the target or you're going out with an objective to get someone somewhere safely and then come back and pick them up. And now you have contingencies. Now, when you talk about seat of the pants, there are contingencies, best case scenario, worst case scenario, and the most likely scenario. So you go through those and you have already pre-planned for those. So if, if, for instance, we go out and aircraft breaks and we have three aircraft and one of them break, well, now the mission is that aircraft. So that way nobody continues on to drop off, you know, a third of the guys or half of the guys. No, the mission becomes that aircraft. Let's secure it. Let's make sure everybody gets back safe. If everyone gets home safe, it's a successful, successful mission. That's all that matters. And there, there are times when that doesn't happen. And we've been there. I mean, I've been there. It's, it's, it's terrible, you know. But <sighs> at the end of the day, you get done. And there is a sense of, all right, we did it. You know, because this happened, you know, this aircraft broke or this, this guy got hurt or whatever it was. It happened. But even in those situations, when you get home, it's like, okay. We did, we did it. There's that accomplishment feeling like you, all right, I, I did it well, no matter whether something bad happened or not. If, if, if you can get home with your crew, then you've been, you've, then you've done well. It's, I mean, it's just mind boggling the amount of responsibility that you're given. You know, you have these millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment and you have to count on your training and your there's there's it's just it just seems overwhelming in regards to the your, the expectations on you for I'm, I'm imagining. I mean, I, I almost see you more kind of more like a pitcher, a, a, a pitcher where you maybe pitch three days, a, maybe you pitch three games out of a, you know, out of five big games. Like, I don't know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine like you're not flying every day. Are you? Uh, sometimes. Um, oh my God. Let's see. I actually, there's, well, you, when you're in, a, in the military, I can't speak for the other branches, but in the army, you have a you know work duty cycle where if I'm going to have less than 10 hours of rest between the end of one day and the beginning of the next then it has to be briefed. It has to be, you have to justify why you're, why you're taking so little time to recover and it has to get briefed. And the, the higher the risk and the shorter the time, the higher it goes and the more, more rank goes onto that risk assessment. Ugh. So it sounds like, it, it, sorry, keep right? going. and there's times where, where even though you, you may think, Oh, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm, I'm you know, I, I got home at 2 a.m. But at 8 a.m., I need to be back at work because there's this thing happening and I, and, and I need to do it. And there's times that that happens. And I'm not going to lie. There's times I've done it, you know, whether it's because I really want to do this mission or, have, or take that flight or because I trust me more than I trust someone else. It doesn't matter. But if you if you take that risk and something goes wrong, you have to. It's not just about who's got the biggest balls and how much courage you have and all that stuff, but you have to take all of that into consideration. What if, 
What if something goes wrong? Even if it wasn't your fault, they go into the nuts and bolts and the detail of what, what, what caused it. And if you can be found at fault, you're going to be found at fault. And if that means because, oh, the risk assessment says that I got 10 hours of sleep last night, so it's a moderate or a low, but really they know that I went home at 2 a.m. and was back at 6. Well, they know that I've lied and that becomes a huge problem. It just seems like it's such a giant and enormous amount of organization on your part and confidence on your part. And, you know, this, the confidence of your technique, the confidence of your learning, the confidence of the, the things that you've been prepared for. I don't know. It also must be very, pardon me. I was going to say, I don't know if it's confidence on me or my confidence. I mean, when I say confidence, I mean like the confidence you, in you, me from others. Yeah, but you but you feel confident that you understand what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. You never you never go every you know you never show up for in the morning and be like, nah, I don't I don't know how to take this thing off the way I'm supposed to. Right. You ha- you're confident in what you're teaching. Right. To the point where you have a very 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 deep understanding of what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of people. That's think, a huge. That's a huge responsibility. Yeah, a lot of people think as an instructor pilot or an instrument examiner. Oh, you teach flight school or you teach kids how to fly. That could be true. I never did. I never went down to Fort Rucker and taught taught flight school. You know, as an instru- as an instructor pilot in a in a unit, you're you're responsible for the records and the upkeeping, which is one of the first things they go to when something's not right or or how to you know how to justify this person being able to fly this aircraft this many hours and doing all those things. But you, as an instructor pilot, you are you are very rarely not in charge of that aircraft. And that's only if you have a another instructor pilot and he's giving you an evaluation. And sometimes I've been in the aircraft where I was giving someone an evaluation and they're actually evaluating someone else. And they're and it's two pilots up front. I'm a pilot, but I'm sitting in the back evaluating both one of them, Ugh. evaluating the other. Aye, aye. You know, it, it it can get it can get confusing. Pressure. But the oh and those are the worst, honestly, because and if you're the middle guy, you know you've pretty much got to fail that guy on the bottom. Ugh. Because then it's like, you know, oh, you didn't fail him? Well, then I'm going to fail you because this is what he did wrong. And, and you know, there's that mentality. And I wish that I had the mindset I do now or I did five or ten years ago. I wish I had that mentality 20 years ago. Because it would have been so much easier if I could just go back with my brain now and say, listen, man. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what doesn't matter. People get, you know, even I do too. You, everyone gets so wrapped around the axle about things that don't matter. And, and, it, and eventually it just catches age. up with them. But that comes with age. It comes with age and understanding of like, I mean, that, all that mm-hmm. stuff. The, I, I, you know, I talked to, I don't know who I talked to recently. People make fun of me that I'm, that I'm, I'm older. Wait a minute. You keep and, saying you're old. At the I'm same, older than at you. At the same time, let's say our birthday. There's no way. At the same time. December 6th. August 1st, 1968. Jesus Christ. I was convinced I was older than you, 1968. I, I, you look so much younger than me. How do I this look, is an outrage. How do I look for 53? 
You look fucking to me. I, I was convinced about. that I'm older than you. All right. Truth is, I was actually born in 78, but I love it when people say, man, you look really good. You son of a bitch, <laughs> you. I was just like, yeah, I knew I was older than you, 67. You son of a Look at you. Yeah, I knew. I was just like, there's no way this guy is fucking younger than me. There's no older than me. He looks too good. Yeah, God well, damn you. All, all right. <laughs> I fucking knew it. I knew. I knew it. You, you, I want to just, I want to grab you by your lapels. I know you don't wear lapels. Nobody wears lapels anymore. So here's the question. Question I have: When you're flying one for one mission, one day, what's the longest you're in the air for? And a helicopter? I have okay. no idea. Well, that that there's another regulation for that as well. Um, you can get extensions. I will tell you that if you're flying for like if you're just going to fly during the day only, there's eight hour time limit. If you're flying in under night vision goggles only, there's a six hour time limit. If you're going to mix it up and fly a little bit of this, a little bit of that, kind of in the transition darkness period, you can fly seven hours. Now, you can get approvals and extensions. And here's the kicker with, with extensions is that no one can force you to take it. If I'm flying and I'm just, I'm tired, no one can say, hey, you have to do this. I have to request it. Like, you actually have to request it. Okay. So, but here's the thing is, <laughs> here's, an, here's another thing, is that sometimes you'll get a change or an addition or something. And it'll come from the top and they'll go, hey, request approved. And you're like, but damn, I didn't even ask for one. Now, the longest I stayed in the air, I flew 10.2 hours. It was a combat day. I was in combat. Um, 10.2 hours, one day in a helicopter. I never once got out of my seat. I never once took a leak. And I, did, I was supposed to ask. And I what did, do you do? And I didn't eat anything. And I was... But the last 30 minutes, I didn't even say anything, but my legs were numb. I didn't even fly the last 30 minutes. I let, I let the guy I was flying with fly. Because, what do you do if you have to go to the bathroom? Uh, you just go. Well, I mean, normally. Go if, where? No, no. If you have to go, obviously, you, you know, if you're refueling, you're getting like hot gas or something where your blades are still turning. They're putting fuel in your aircraft. I mean, one pilot will hold the controls. The other one will jump out, go behind the wall and take a leak. Jump, go back, go take a leak where? Oh, just behind like a, a wall somewhere. Oh, the side? Yeah. No, no, no. They'll jump out of the aircraft and walk over no, no, no. Behind, you- behind a building or something and just go. All right, all right. No, seriously, this is, a, where do you go to the bathroom, you know, in a Black Hawk helicopter? Oh, you can't tell, oh, shit. tell me you that's re- classified. You really think I'm I need kidding. to know. I need to know. No, I'm Because serious. I know that I need to, I need to know. Where do you go to the bathroom Listen, when you're flying in a Black Hawk helicopter? You don't if you're actually flying. Now, they do have these things called Little Johns that you can buy at little, you know, FBOs and small airports for pilots. And it's just like a little large, it's kind of a large condom. Well, for me anyway. No, I'm just kidding. But it's a, it's we like. You got to get into that. I yeah. think you got a big piece. It's like a PS. condom yes, thing that talk about you put on you got a big piece. with a tube and it goes into a, like a bag. I mean, there's these things, but, but I don't know any pilot in the, in the military that has voluntarily pissed themselves or whatever. Now, there's been plenty of people to just crap their pants in the air- aircraft or piss themselves now that happens but it's not because oh i'm just gonna go because i don't care no it's because i it came it hit me all of a sudden and i can't hold it and you're in the middle of some shit and you just cannot stop and that's it but if you have to go shoot if we're if you and i are out flying a training mission somewhere and you i gotta take a leak all right well i'm gonna go land right over here jump out go take a piss usually it's behind the cargo door and if the if the guy's still on the controls, holding the controls so the aircraft doesn't move, if he's, an, if he's a dick, he'll lift up on the collective a little bit and create some downdraft so you piss all over yourself. Wait a second. <laughs> you, you, you're, but you're, you, you, I would think 
and this is just being be, me being you know jocular mm-hmm. you if you have to take a leak you're you're allowed to land the helicopter to take a leak sure why not anywhere no no not anywhere um on a training insula- installation usually it's one of the training areas if you're in combat you definitely don't want to land no but if you so you you take a leak before you go it's like getting in the car I'm not going to stop 30 minutes after I after I drive out of the driveway to to let somebody go take a leak. They better go before we leave. Oh my you know god! I mean, I mean but then now one time. So in the in the in a Blackhawk, for instance, there's a there's a cargo hook underneath, right? But there's a little like I guess layman's terms, you just call it a a, a porthole in the floor. Right. Now I have seen someone lay flat like they were doing like a plank challenge or something, right? And just piss straight down, dick out, yeah, just, just right in the hole, just go. Now, I've seen I don't that. blame them. Yeah, I would totally do and that. I've heard, I would have to have a plan. I've heard rumors that's, of someone taking a dump through it too, but I've never actually seen it. That's aggressive. Yeah, that's aggressive. That's an aggressive move. But you know, you got to go. You got to go, uh, or you got to tell a story. Oh man, I, I would. I, I, well, you know what? <laughs> some I, I of them just, we can't you know, tell. <laughs> I don't. I'm not listening. I know you said to me beforehand. There's certain things you can't talk about, but I'm glad you could talk about what you have to do if you're if you're in a Blackhawk helicopter. What if your co-pilot's got to take a leak? Right then. Hey, can you just open the door and just gonna go out the side? Or? No, no, no. If if well, you and I are flying, and I say, okay. and you say, hey, I gotta take a leak. I say, all right, well, we gotta get gas anyway. Let's call for hot refuel. Get us in there. What's hot refuel? Hot refuel is when the bl- the engines are still running and the blades have been pulled back to idle or something, and they're still turning. So the blades are still turning. Everything's still moving. You just you open your door. You step out. You you go under, but you're on the ground. Yeah, you're underground, and you, okay. you walk over, and you get some, you know, you get some alone time with yourself. But I mean, I have I can't tell you how many times I've seen someone get out. They're like, I gotta take a dump so bad, and they they jump out of the aircraft, they they start running, they take about three or four steps, then they put their head down and stop, and then they just start walking. That, Why? Because they knew they just shit themselves. Oh my god! Yeah, it's happened. See, that happens. Oh, it happens more than you think. I would think that they put stuff in the military food to prevent that kind of no, thing. No, there's been, I would think there's that, rumors about stuff like that. Like in basic training, they're like, "Oh, they put this stuff in your in your food in basic training so that you don't get a boner." And I'm like, "That just doesn't make sense." But that's prison. They do that in prison. See, <laughs> they, maybe they do it in prison too. Not, not that I know. I've mean, heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a couple, a couple, like I guess about a month ago, you were in New York. Yeah, and yeah. you were at a was it the Army Navy football I was game at the Army Navy football Yankee? game. Yeah. Yeah, it was a giant stadium, right? That's right. My, uh, which is amazing, by the way. It was my first time at the Meadowlands, which I was so excited about. Now, tell me if I'm wrong. You told me that back in the day, you used to fly a helicopter over the Meadowlands. I used to fly. I used to do. Well, I used to do flyovers, which means football games or a Super Bowl or or um, an Army Navy game or an NFL Titans game or something like you know. I would do flyovers all over the place, all over the place. And it would be awesome. And, and you, you know, it, you, everybody loves it. Cause you know that there's no danger. You're the greatest risk out there. And yeah. you know that everyone's going to be looking at you doing something really cool. And I, I got to tell you when I found, so a friend of mine, a three-star Marine general invited me to go. He's like, Hey, he asked me like six months ahead of time. Hey, I'm going to get army, army, Navy game tickets. Do you want to go? I said, absolutely. Now, when I tell somebody I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So I said, absolutely. And I made sure I was going to go. And my favorite team, my son's, both my kids' favorite team were Giants fans. 
Now we haven't really been watching since Eli retired, you know, but when we found out that it was at the Meadowlands, we were, we were over the moon. And I asked my older son who flies helicopters or he, he, he's a, he works, he's a, he works on helicopters for the army. Let's just put it that way. Right. He, um, he said, I don't know if I can get the time off. I said, dude, it's a giant stadium. He's like, uh, well, he just couldn't get the time off. But then about a week and a half before we leave for, for New York, he goes, guess what? I said, what? He goes, I'm doing the flyover. I said, for wow. what? Wow. And so, you know how many years my son has got me, got to watch me do a flyover? And now I'm on the 50-yard line, like halfway up the, the thing, and I'm sitting there, and here he comes. And I, and I know what helicopter he's in, and I'm just watching it. And I was just like, holy shit, full circle right there. That's I got a beer amazing. in my hand watching my boy up in the sky. That's got to be the craziest feeling in the world. Oh, it was. Like, I'm not going to lie. I, I, I had a little bit of tears welling up. I bet. I mean, it was, it was awesome. And I think it might when have been wind. <laughs> when, you're fly, when you're flying in for like a flyover, mm-hmm. in the, does the FAA get involved? Or I, I don't understand the difference between, you know, like I mean, when you're flying over a city, is it different? Well, what does it feel like? So there's, there's, I mean, you fly over cities around here too. You know, I know, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just, I'm curious. Like, do you have to do something different? Yes. Um, it depends on where you're at, the area you're in, what kind of, what class airspace is nearby, all those kind of things. But you're always going to go through the same steps, whether or not you use, you have to do something or not that changes. But for instance, if you're going to fly like the Meadowlands, you're going to do that. Well, you're going to call the tower. You're, well, you're going to call ground tower and then approach. And you're going to be up there doing your thing. You're flying VFR. And then you're going to be talking to LaGuardia or, or whoever. And you're going to, they're not going to care that some little thing is flying at 500 feet and below around the city. Now, I say that certain aircraft have certain privileges that others don't. Huh. Where they can fly a little bit lower or they can do a little bit more. You know, there's standing orders that allow certain aircraft to do certain things. Well, you're going to you're going to go through the same bit. Like if I'm flying here, if I was flying here and I went downtown Nashville and I would call approach and say, hey, this is who I am. Um, this is where I am. This is what I would like to do. And that is basically what you do every single time. Hey, you, it's me. This is what I want to do. They go, oh, hey, you, this is me. This is what you're allowed to do. Approved or disapproved or do this. And then. You confirm that, and you you keep going. And so, if they say, "Hey, we're going, we're doing the flyover," of course, they, the FA probably already knows that who's doing the flyover, and they know what call signs to look for. And once they're up there, it's it. It's I mean, it's a is, standard flight. It's easy and it's fun. Is it is tower where you're starting from an approach where you're going? No. T- so when you're on the air, when you're on the ground, you're in your parking space, like on the ground at an airfield. Some airports don't have a ground of someone that's just their call sign. Ground is means anybody that's moving around on the ground. Some airports have a a common traffic frequency and they'll, and they'll just announce what they're doing. But for the most part, we'll just go with grounded tower. So I'm, I'm on the ground and I'm, Hey, I want to taxi from here to there. I'm planning on departing this runway. They, okay. All right, go ahead. Ground says, go ahead, do this or hold short or whatever. Contact tower once you get there. So you get there and you switch your frequency and you, you call tower and you say, Hey tower, I'm holding short runway two one. I'm ready for takeoff 
to the West or whatever it is. And they say, okay, stand by. Or they say, okay, they'll give you winds. They'll give you all this information. And then they'll say, clear for takeoff. And okay. And then once you get up to a certain altitude, they're either going to hand you off to approach, which is kind of like the next higher level. So you you got ground tower and approach and all that stuff. Just think of it as a wedding cake. You know, the bottom layer is ground, middle layer is tower and top layer is approach. And that's just a simplified version of this because I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a lot of people messaging me going, dude, you know what the hell you're talking about. Not these fucking people. Not the people listening to this fucking podcast. (laughs) Trust me. They're not going to say shit. They're not going to say shit to you. They're going to say shit to me. They're going to be like, you got a Blackhawk helicopter pilot and you want to know where he takes a leak? That's what I'm going to get. So here's the. So just out of curiosity, have you ever been on a flight where it's your favorite flight? It's your. You've never. You've. You've been. It's been. You look out and you're just kind of out of yourself and just like, this is the greatest flight I've ever been on. Ooh, that's, I've actually never been asked that question before. I know what I'm doing, Joe. Come on, man. There's gotta be a few of them. There's gotta be a few of them. Yeah. Where you're just like, I cannot believe I'm able to do this. This is the greatest thing. You know what? Because I'm thinking. You know what? Yeah. Because I'm, I'm running on the Hudson Valley. I'm on the Hudson River. Mm -hmm. And I see these guys flying from Fort, I don't remember the name of the no, 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 no. It's 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 in we- it's in we- northern Westchester's Fort uh, Fort Smith. Oh, okay, it's Fort Smith. Yeah. And these guys go over the Hudson River, and all I can think of is those guys are enjoying their flight. Oh my God! So there are aspects of almost every flight that you just you get to a point, and you're just like, oh, look at that. That is this is just so cool. Like you're right. doing low <clears throat> stuff, nap of the earth through over a river, or you know what I mean, and you're just like cruising along and having a blast now because i'm not in the military anymore and i'm pretty sure i can't get in trouble i don't mind right. i don't mind telling you um let's just say that someone flew under the st louis arch and it was awesome in missouri, in missouri. and I've, I've got a picture of it so there you go nobody's gonna bust me for that because i would never dime someone out and i would never give up that photo but i got to tell you the one of the coolest moments i ever had was in northern Afghanistan and f- flying around. Um, we'll just say it was just south of the air of the base. Fine. And there's a plateau up there that is, com- it's, I would guess that it's about 100 acres big, but it's hundreds of feet drop all the way around it. Now, people think Afghanistan, they think desert and bombs. Well, I got to tell you, Afghanistan is some of the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. When you're flying over the Hindu Kush at 15, 16,000 feet, or you're, you're, I mean, it, I actually, we nicknamed it Narnia because you head to this certain location and it's just green, like bushes and trees. And it's, it, wow. it looks like Narnia. You, you expect fairies and butterflies and stuff. Well, on this plateau, there are wild horses that have been living up there for hundreds of years. Never seen a human being. There's no trails. There's no way to get up there. It's just a giant plateau that has been washed out over you know centuries of whatever. And we decided, you know what? Let's land here. And the horses are all out there. And we landed there. And it was beautiful. And I, I just, nobody, I, I can't begin to explain it to people who wouldn't even, who don't understand because you can say, hey, I saw this card, it was beautiful. Or I saw this woman, she was beautiful. Or this piece of property, and it was beautiful. But when I say that this piece of land was beautiful, I mean, it's 
it's borderline. I would, I would live there even though it's 10,000 miles away from everything else. It is, wow. it's the most ridiculously beautiful country side I'd ever seen in my life. Now there's the opposite of that, but it's still pretty badass. is the star. You, you've seen star Wars. You remember the, sure. Remember the little Valley area that they were doing their starfighter chases in. There's a, okay. there's a bunch of rock formation canyons that you're flying in and you're looking up on both sides you know, a couple hundred feet above you and you're in this a canyon and you're just flying through a canyon. And come on, man, that is just, that's just something. That, and you know what the thing is, the military pays you to fly. Now they, that's don't, what, they don't pay you to screw off. We weren't screwing off. We were actually either training or we were going somewhere to do something. But I just never understood how many people out there complained about being a pilot when I'm thinking, man, the army is paying me to do this. That's just awesome. What was your call sign? Oh, I had a lot of them. Give me a couple. All right. Um, what was your favorite and what was your least favorite? Ooh. Come on, baby. Uh, now you're on the fucking hook. I'll say. Uh, favorite and least favorite. All right. Favorite is a toss-up between. Favorite's a toss-up between Crossbow 1-3. Damn. And Fallout 1-1. One, one. Whoa. Yeah. God. Uh, Those yeah. were crossbow. I got to write these down. Oh, God. I, I forgot them already. <laughs> Those are awesome. Yeah. What are the worst? The worst. Oof. Oh, Small man. bladder. That's... Five, five. <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> That's mine. That's my call sign. <laughs> Small bladder, three, three. I will tell you. Let's see. The worst. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I'm not afraid to say it because, because of who's, who else would know what it was and why I hate it. Go ahead. But honestly, I don't even remember what it was. Do you remember anyone that you were just like, eh, it's not so great? Oh, I remember. Oh, yeah, I remember call like signs. Bologna like, sandwich 2-2 two, two or something. I mean, <laughs> like, uh, Brut is a call sign, which is, Br- which is, Brut. which is posture for like mustache or beard. Oh, okay. And that was a call sign that I was like, eh. That's all right, but it's like yeah, it's all right. But you, it's no crossbow one one. But you got to say it with some gusto. Yeah. I mean, you got to put some bass in your voice to say that. Yeah, that's not, and I'm like, that's I don't good. want, I don't want to waste the effort. Fine, yeah. Well, but yeah. Any other, any other juicy ones? Because I'm thinking, you know, you think about like you watch like Top Gun. And he's got Maverick and Iceman and all these oh, things. Those are the, I'm thinking yeah. you got like a name. I think you got a name in you that's just like the best. That you should really probably change your Instagram name. Oh to. man, oh no, I definitely would not do that. <laughs> Um, there, you got any? You got any good ones? Come on, there's, man. Well, I don't know. You can't get so in trouble, right? You watch Top Gun. You see all those names. Those are those personal call signs. We, What's your we personal call, call sign? We call those either, you know, handles or, or nicknames. Really? Now, I know. I'll give you some of my friends. How about that? Because they're probably oh, going to come on. But no, seriously, I don't. Oh, you can't. I, I can't. I really can't. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But we'll say, how about Crash? How about that's a good one. Right, you know, I'm going to go through the, the the whole group right here. Okay, and, and these are just these are my buddies, and we hang out. This is Crash, Danger, Rooster, Scotty, Too Hotty, um, Petey, Boston. <laughs> Petey, I love Petey of all in, in, all in their Petey. Yeah. Go ahead, Petey, Boston. Um, let's see who else. Those are good names. I mean, Petey. Petey's probably feeling a little bit left out. Uh, there was Dumas. Oh, I remember Dumas. Dumas is a good one. Yeah. Well, if you if you say it differently, it's dumbass. But okay. Yeah. Well. <laughs> 
<laughs> some of the you see if you get these nicknames it's like you know you want the good but you, you oh. can't make up your own nickname. oh here's a bad one you ready go ahead shit mouth Oh, yeah. poor shit mouth. Yeah. Shit mouth. Does he have to say that to the tower? No, hey, no, tower. no, no. He, shit he mouth? won't say it in the aircraft. That's just what everybody calls him. Oh, shit mouth. Why did he get the name shit mouth? Well, that's that's the unfortunate thing is you don't, you never get to call your nickname. You never get to call oh, it. Or, but he must have done something to get shit mouth, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, what did shit mouth do to get oh. such a terrible name? I don't, oh. Honestly, honestly, you I... Go home, you go home, you're, you're, you go home for Christmas and your parents are just like, hey, what's going on? Not much. What, what's going on in the, in the world of, uh, you know, combat and <laughs> being a pilot? Oh, not much. Do you ha- I watch Top Gun. Do you have a name like Iceman? Yeah. Well, what is it? Oh, shit mouth. What? Oh what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing with your life? Well, I'll tell you. Shit mouth. I honestly, I never found out why they call him shit mouth. I mean, Ugh. like I know who Triple Dick is and all that stuff. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about this Triple Dick. Triple, triple Dick. Dick. I need to know about Triple Dick. Because, because his name is Richard Peter Johnson. <laughs> oh, God, what is wrong with his parents? No, it's not, that's not I mean, the real, the, the real issue is his parents. I mean, people get nicknames. And they don't get Triple to choose them, but dick. you know what? You, if uh, you get a nickname, that means that's that's like a term of endearment. That I, of course, but I mean, wait, what was his his name? Was Richard Dick Peterson? What no, was his nickname? Richard Peter Johnson. Poor guy. Yeah, his parents. And you know, we get Triple off the dick we get off the phone name. here. I'll tell you what mine is, and then you'll know exactly why I can't tell you. All right, you know, well, I, okay, I, I'll I'll wait for that one. Right. I I think it's funny. I think oh, poor shit mouth. I swear to God, I swear to God, that would be mine. Would totally be small bladder. It would be small bladder. I gotta pee. Actually, I gotta pee. All the the friends that I hang out with probably wouldn't take the time to say small bladder. They'd be like, hey bladder, hey, <laughs> hey they bladder, they hey urine, call, they, hey, they just call you bladder. Hey, Penis. Or they, or That's they... my, my call name. <laughs> <laughs> penis. <You're>, yep. <laughs> you go home for that one. Yep. Can you imagine? What's going on, Dad? Uh, you know, uh, hey, I'm back for the winter. What's your call sign? Pen fifteen. Ten fifteen. Penis. Oh God. But yeah. back to back to. Oh God, that was too funny. I, I you know, I, I can imagine that like having such wonderful. Exp- you had wonderful experiences where there's. I, I can't help but think about responsibility, like responsibility to your friends, to your colleagues, to the people that you're, you know, you're serving with. Right. And the coming back has got to be the hardest part. It is. I, um, it's got to be the hardest part. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a friend of mine, uh, JT, who's who's actually in Somalia with with 10th, 10th Mountain during um, in October 93. He writes he writes country music now here in Nashville and does a warrior rounds event where brings a lot of veterans in and and i actually i was i attended one i i have a song that was written about something that i really believe in and he wrote a song called coming home and and actually asked me to be in his music video and part of the song goes where they they put you on a plane they send you home then take your gun and they call it coming home Hmm. and it's like damn that's that i feel that you know you know one day you're you're there doing everything you can to prevent that shit from getting to your doorstep. And the next day you're, you're behind your door, you're inside your house right. and everyone just assumes that, Oh, it's great. Cause I'm, I'm home. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I had had the conversation where I told her like, I miss it. I want to go right. back. You know, I spend, I spent eight plus years in combat zones over tw- over a 20 year period. And you get to the point where like, it's not just, 
it's not like, oh, it's who I am. It's in my DNA. No, it's not. It's just I'm, I'm conditioned to live that way of always going, always going, never stop. Wake up, my eyes are open, I'm moving. And it's hard to turn that off and people just don't understand it. It's not, it's not always just PTSD or, or things that people want to claim. It's, it really is a lifestyle adjustment and it's, yeah. and you have to find a new sense of purpose. And that was the biggest part for me was finding like, where do I fit in? And that's why I told you that story about forging with all those people. And, and, and I just kind of pulled my steel out of the forge and walked over and started making miniature knives. I had that. I, in fact, I had a conversation with, with Mareko. I picked him up from the airport to hit over, over um, in Carolina to head to Winterstrong. And I, we were talking and I told him about that, about, about the, uh, that day. And then, you know, I told him, I said, and I, and then by the end of the weekend, I had told him that, you know what, from now on, when I'm around you, all my insecurities are gone. It's not that I think I'm better than you or I've made it. It's just that I've got, I've got to learn to deal with my shit and not let it spill into what I'm trying to do and affect the job that I think I can do for others. Maybe we all need to give each other call signs. Hey, I'm maybe that's the, look. I'm down. Maybe, <laughs> you, want, you know, I was I was thinking it. about what you were saying. I, I actually, it brought me back to the Josh uh, Smith uh, interview when he was talking about he he was talking about the Mobile Forge, and he was saying that a lot of people, you know, it's so great. But he's like he said he said it's so great. And he says you know you hear a lot of people think. I'm going to do something like this, or I'd love to do something like this, where you make something where you can bring a forge with you. And it really stuck with me in terms of like why you did it. And when I really thought about everything, including, you know, for the past week, listening to interviews and watching you on Naked and Afraid and thinking about, you know, your stories and, and your story. And actually it was yesterday. I was walking the dogs and I was thinking about you. And it made me realize that I think that there's this kind of like almost like a substitution. I think about your mobile, I mean, I think about your beautiful truck and your mobile forge and your, your tent that's on your roof and it, it, it's, everything's very like, it's big and it's beautiful and it's clean and it looks just really so, you know, ship shape. And it makes me wonder if you think that there is a connection between what you were doing as a pilot and what you're doing now because you know the traveling i think is part of that whole when i was asking you about how long you've been on a, you know in a, you know a flight and i watch your instagram videos which are great when you're on the road and i saw the one you did earlier this week where you said i'm going to be going away for you know a month now and then i'm going to come back for 10 days i'm going to be back for 2 months and then i'm going to california and texas and montana and it made me feel like this mobile forge is perfect for you because you have this connection with the idea of going on these, you know, missions or going on, you know, this big helicopter and preparing yourself and organizing everything and organizing yourself and having a having a destination and, and understanding what you need to do to get there. And I feel like there almost is this like. Have you? T- it's almost as if you've. It's almost as if you've like substituted what you used to do in the in the military. Have you been talking to, to what my you're wife? Doing now, what? Have you been talking to my wife? I don't talk to anybody. Well, I talk to you. Am I wrong? No, you're not. You're not wrong. That's that's why I asked. Like, I didn't know. Maybe you did your homework and was you know making phone calls. But that's very specific. That's a very specific generalization scenario. And and you know what? I never actually thought about it that way. But when you say, as you say it, and I think about it, I'm thinking, let's see, 
It's self-sustaining. I'm always making improvements. Everything has a place and there's a place for everything in the forge. I take care of it myself. I don't trust anyone else to put anything away or unload it or, or do anything except for me. And you know what? You're not wrong at all. That is, that is really, you know what? If you have an applause button, man, please push it because that was good. Well, it's true, but I mean, good. because you, I see, I see this, I mean, to, cause you know, I always think about like, I think about like when I hear what people do, I think, well, how would I feel? And the traveling and be like, oh, he's going away for another three months. Oh, he's going away for, and then he's going to be home for a week. And then what do you do with the dogs? And what do you, and then, oh, what about this? And all the, and to me, it's just such a huge pain in the ass. Right. And I'm, and I, all I can think of is it's not just because you feel compelled to, 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 to go to these places. Right. But you, this is part of who you were for 20 years exactly. in the military. And, well, you just said it. That's a part of who I was. And my family, my parents, my, my kids, my, you know, my wife, especially, they, they've lived, they live that life with me. And when, when I'm home, and we kind of joke around with it sometimes when I'm home for more than a couple of months. And, you know, we start to get on each other's nerves by something stupid, you know, just a little silly stuff. And we kind of start laughing and we're like, all right, well, you have any trips coming up? Because I was never home for that long in the military. And right. so now it's, it's like, oh, I've got these, these are my plans and we make it work. I mean, we, and, she, and, and I wouldn't do this if she didn't support me doing it. Yeah, I'll, of course. I'll, I'll just start with that. But when, when I'm home and when I'm home, I'm home and we're doing our thing and we're, we're, we're having a good time. And in fact, this morning we were just sitting there looking at the calendar thinking, okay, we want to take this trip with a new, with a new Bronco, uh, when it comes, when we get it and we want to do something cool and we haven't been around, we haven't been able to go out and do much lately. We usually take one beach trip a year and then every other year or so we'll try and pay, take a nice trip, but because of COVID and because her, she got new horses and all this stuff. And because I've been traveling, we have pretty much put ourselves to the side. And so we actually just booked it today to go to Texas and do this trail stuff and just have a good time. And it's not, it's not a knife thing. It's not a horse thing. It's just a, her and I are going to go do something together. And, it, but that's a pilot thing too, where, yeah. you know, you have your mission and then you're home and then you're back and then you're home and you've created this, you've created this, this connection that you it has given you the ability to not only cope, but to prosper. I think, I think you understand that more than I do, because the more you talk about it, the more I'm just like, holy crap. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're saying the things that I, maybe I didn't know how to say or what to say, but that's, you're absolutely right, man. Um, well, there you everything go. I'm, there you everything go. I'm doing kind of, you could equate it. I mean, if you look in my shop, I've had people come in here and go, holy smokes, man, this thing is like, why is it so clean? Do you even work in here? And I'm like, no, I don't want to go look for a three thirty seconds T-shaped Allen wrench or this file or whatever. I want everything that I need to be here. And first thing I do when I get into my shop is I make sure that everything's cleaned and everything is in its place before I start working. And then the last thing I do is I vacuum and make sure everything's put away. The reason I get up in the morning and because I know it's going to, people are going to ask, well, why do you, Check it in the morning if you did it the last thing. Well, because I want to make sure I didn't forget anything. I want to make sure that, you know, like this morning, I get in here after I went to go see a doctor. I came back home. I went into the shop and I look at my wall and I'm thinking, where the hell is my file? 
There's a round file that I use to just check my carbon, and it's not here. Even though last night I was in the shop making sure everything was put away. And it turns out it was in the trailer still because I hadn't offloaded the rest of the trailer. And then I was like, oh, that's right. I need to go back out to the trailer and get the rest of my equipment and bring it in. Speaking of equipment, I would be remiss to not talk about your episode of Naked and Afraid, season 11, episode 15. Talking about my shark bait? Well, we got to talk about that. You were on Naked and Afraid, season 11, episode 815. I support everybody to go to YouTube and you can buy an episode. You can buy one episode. And I watched that episode. You know, I don't really watch a lot of TV. The, these people make this show called Naked and Afraid, and you make your you you're joking. You make the jokes that's like, all right, these people with their dicks out and mm-hmm. they're you know trying to camp or something like that. Right. That show, your show, the show you were on, made me so uncomfortable that from beginning to end, it looked like sheer torture. To set it up, you were in the Bahamas yeah. with this uh, with this woman who was a nurse. Yep. And you were both nude, mm-hmm. and you had to go 20 miles by building rafts from one island to the next. The first island didn't have water, right. and then you had to go to the next island to find water. And it was such, it was so torturous to me to watch. I was like, I was literally writhing around, you know, mm-hmm. and just being like, I, this makes me so miserable. I think it's a state of mind. Um, I don't, like, I, naked and afraid... And, and that adventure not even does not even come close to defining who I am or it's not like the biggest thing I've ever done, which, which, you know, it's still, it was fun. It was an adventure. And would I go again? I would go again, depending on contracts and whether or not it would allow me to do some other things that I'm working on. But I loved, I loved every single heartbreaking moment of it, even even when you see me crying and they didn't show me throwing up, but even with me throwing up and passing out all that stuff, I loved every single minute of it. I loved being out there and, and working my ass to the bone, making rafts for Lisa and I. And I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better partner. Honestly. Um, we just complimented each other, each, each other pretty well. there was only one argument we ever had the whole time and they didn't even show it, which is fine because it was didn't really mean anything. Um, but you get out there and you just got to know how, like, I don't care about nudity. Everybody has skin. It doesn't, it, like, it doesn't affect me. Some people it affects. I get all that. But you get out there and you, you got to build a raft. Well, first thing, I'm con- you got to figure out, forget the raft. We're on this island without water. We need to find some water and we need to get build a shelter and f- some fire. You know, we've got to get, let's take care of ourselves and figure out, make a plan. And, you know, the beginning of day, I guess the beginning of day two, early in the morning, finished the first raft. And there was, um, I mean, the people, people think Bahamas and you're like, oh yeah, that was tough. It is the worst place to go hard. for, for bugs. I mean, they're, it's like they're on a schedule. If the doctor flies aren't cutting you open and making you bleed, then the mosquitoes and the gnats are out or the no are sitting there getting you or the sand fleas are getting you and it's nonstop. And you mix that in with dehydration and hunger and orneriness, you know, it's, it, it's a disaster waiting to happen, but it's awesome. And I'm telling you, like I've, I've done survival trips. I've done plenty of survival trips. I've done trips by myself. I got lost in the woods. I've done all that stuff. 
but this was the best and the worst experience of my life. Worst experience because I honestly thought I was going to die when I got home. What they don't, you know, what they don't show on TV is the things that don't really matter for ratings. And I understand that. That's just normal stuff. It's like when you go to edit a podcast, you're going to take out the minutia. Well, I had kid, I had my kidney stones out there and Lisa actually was the one to to bring it up like I think you have kidney stones. And I was like, I don't know what it is. And I would, I would like scream and like in so much pain, I would throw up and then I would pass out and then I would wake up. Did you, had you had kidney stones? Before? I had one when I was 18 years old. Jeez. Yeah. I had, I had one when I was 18 and I thought, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I got something. So I went to go see the doctor and I was all embarrassed and it turns out it was kidney stone. And so when I got so I stayed out there even though I, I had the kidney stones and I actually passed the kidney stone on that Island on the Island. Jesus Christ. Like about midnight 30 standing there, just doubled over, just dying. All of a sudden it came out like a, like a rocket. And I was, and, <laughs> and my fever of 103.8 didn't go away for five days. And I was just like, Oh my God. Well, I was, at first they were like, Oh, you got to leave. You got, we got to get you out of here. And then, then it was like, Oh no, 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 you can stay. And then, and then finally I'm like, you know what? Something is wrong. I need to get out of here. I need to go see a doctor. And the deal was I was, I really wanted to get her across the big water to that next Island. So we built that raft and we head out and we were almost there and I get a boat or I get, you know, then I, then, you know, and then I'm gone. I go home. When I get home, I spend five days on the couch. And this is something that people just didn't know. You know, they, I got, if you, if you go back and look all over Facebook, Instagram, whatever, and, and look up the episode, you'll see all the hate and all the shit that people were giving me. Even guys I knew Why? back in the day. Oh, he ain't tough. Oh, that guy's such a puss, whatever. I don't give a shit what they say. When I got home, I sat on the couch for five days. I couldn't move. I, if I tried to walk to the front door, I felt like I was just going to pass out. And I, my fever of a 103.8 stayed with me for five more days at home. And I lost, I, I lost five more pounds. I ended up losing 17 pounds only because uh, we cooked, I, we cooked a lot of crab. We, I found some bird eggs and it turns out they were already fertilized. So I had to rip the beaks off and swallow them. But yeah, those are gross. Yeah. But when I got home and I, that happened, I was like, I finally, I was like, all right, that's it. I got to go see my doc. So I called my, my flight doctor, my flight surgeon who, happened to retire at the same time I did and opened a private practice in town. So he, he knew my, my history. He knows all about me. It's just so much easier for me just to call him up and say, Hey, doc, Hey doc, I, I need to see you. So I went and saw him and it turns out my kidneys were shutting down. And, and I was, I was like, I was really close to being in a really bad way. So dialysis. Yeah. So like four more days or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy again. I'm back on my feet. Everything's seemed to be fine. And then it was about two months after that, where I could go outside and walk to the mailbox, you know, a few hundred feet away and not feel like I was winded and out of breath. Even the two steps going into the house on the the wood steps, just taking two steps up the hill. I was like, uh, you know, and, and that's not the worst of it. I mean, that's, that's the worst of it for me, but I know people that, you know, that had it so much worse that are still, still dealing with problems, you know, from the show. Yeah. From the show. I don't know. I mean, I'm not throwing hate because it's, it was an awesome experience and I think I'll thank them all day long. 
because I knew what I was signing up for and I took it and, and they threw it and I took it and I would, I would take it again. You know, See, but. I think that you, I think that people. I, it's interesting because we deal with so many people on TV shows, like who who get involved with Forge and Fire or, or Metal Shop Masters. I talk to all a lot of these people, and sometimes I wonder what people's motivation is for going on them. Like part of it is, is I think especially with maker shows like Forge and Fire and stuff like that. I I get this. I have this really sinking feeling that people seem to think that they're going to be discovered. Yeah. Or they're going to be discovered and things are going to happen for them. Or the, and the, it's just, the opposite, too. They think, oh, I'm going to go on there and I'm going to lose. And then I'm going to be I'm going to be shit out of luck and I'll never sell a knife. Well, I, I, I tend to I tend to think that people are optimistic going in there and thinking like I'm going to be discovered. And when I thought when I was thinking about you being on Naked and Afraid, because they don't have any they don't have any like there's no prize money. Right. I mean, you get paid. There's a pay thing you know there's an oh, ND- did you have to join sag there's an nda that you signed but let's just say there's okay. a pay thing based off of your how you do yeah, how you're how you're doing out there did you have to join sag did you have to get a sag card no. okay even though so I thought, okay I, I, now looking back i'm thinking we probably should have because of certain certain things that you have to sign right certain liberties right. that are being and taken you, yeah but then you eh. Well, whatever. I, 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 I appreciated the fact that you went on it because I felt as if that you were like, this was like, you know, you've been through so much and you've, you've gone through so much and you've really tried to like, you're such a positive person. You're so helpful. It just seemed as though it was a, it was a, it was something you wanted to do to just to do it. Yeah. And, and I felt like your motivation was much more pure than what a lot of people's is. I'm not necessarily sure that going on to these shows because you're just like, I have to win this money is really a good enough motivation for people to, you know, put themselves out there. Well, like I'll that. tell you, I donated my money. I told them before you, they even selected me. If you let me go, I'm going to donate. I'm not doing this for money. I'm not selling out. It's not that I'm well off and I need, I don't need the money because trust me, that is definitely not the case. I did it and I donated the money because I did not want anyone thinking I did it just for the money. I did it because it was an experience that I wanted to do. It wasn't my first choice for for a a show, a survival show. There was another one that I really was was getting close to. Which one? Well, I wanted to do another one on another network. But you mean Survivor? No, I no. Right. I would I would I would be terrible at Survivor. They get into the social game of it, and I would have to smile and nod. Yeah, but you're oh. so nice. Yeah, exactly. Until I'm not. Remember, no middle gear. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You, then you all call sign shit yeah. mouth, and then, then the next someone's going to give you know, a call sign. Someone's going to have some problems. But I'll tell you what, though, there's I got a funny one for you. <laughs> Speaking of forge and fire, when I first started making knives, I did not, I hadn't watched a single episode. I didn't even know what it was. I just knew that there was a show called Forging on Fire something, yeah. and I didn't know anything about it. So I was making these knives, and I went to Blade Show West where. I I had known Kayla before Kayla Cummings and I had been basically milking her brain for, for a year, almost getting all this knowledge and talking about knives and learning. And when I got there, she was walking in with Neil and Neil had already knew who I was from mutual friends. And so I, and he knew my backstory and all. And so he takes me over and introduces me to a couple of other people, you know, Mike Tyree and Coster and Jason Knight and all these guys. And when I go over to Jason, Jason Knight looks at me and he goes, oh, hey, how you doing? And he said, the first question he asked me is, what kind of knives do you make? 
And I pulled this one knife that I'd brought and I had spent forever on it. And I didn't know anything about the different types of steel, but it just happened to be a CPM 154 steel that I had forged. And it, and I had forged it probably, I think I broke four of them before I finally got it right because it was kept cracking. And I didn't realize that you're not supposed to forge CPM. Stainless. Yeah. So I, find, I pulled this knife out that I was so proud of. I even was live when I finished it because I was sitting there telling everybody, I'm going to this knife show. I'm not doing a table, but I'm bringing this knife show because I'm hoping somebody wants to see what I make. And I was so proud of it. And I, I, I was live for probably six hours until about 3 a.m. the night before, just finishing hand sanding the, the handles. And so Jason said, what kind of knives do you make? And I pulled this knife out and I showed it to him. And I'm you know all proud and chest puffed out. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. It indexes well. It's nice and straight. I like this finish. And he's, and in my mind, all of a sudden, I, I'm just going, who the hell is this guy judging my shit? Like, he's just judging me. <laughs> and then I look over and I see Forge Series, Jason Knight. And I'm like, wait a second. And I went over there and I look and they're like, oh, yeah, he used to be a judge on Forged in Fire. And he's a black master yeah. bladesmith and all this stuff. I was like, oh, my God, I'm glad I didn't say anything. Well, Jason became a really good friend after all that. And I've been to his place and he teaches me everything he can. And we talk about life and all that stuff. And I immediately when I got home, I immediately binge watched every single episode of Forged in Fire. And then all of a sudden it hit me in the face and I'm like, oh, my God. That guy's been to my house twice. That I know that guy. Hey, I didn't know that guy was on Forge and Fire. Like all these people that I had met just traveling the country. And like before I had the mobile forge, I did what I called a learning tour where I would just drive to different knife makers' houses and travel like 6,000 miles just to learn what I didn't know. And when, when he was, when I, and I'm so grateful to every single one of them, but I'm so happy that. I never, that I know of, I never put my foot in my mouth or stepped on anybody's toes or insulted someone, you know, because it's, it's not something that I would, I would want to do. Yeah. I, it's, it's, that's important. It, it, this is a really amazing community and, and, and it's like, you know, it's, we're all good when things are good and, you know, so would you ever, if you, would you get the opportunity to go on fortune fire? Would you go? Oh man, that's a good one. Uh, actually, David Dave Baker was at my table at Blade Show, and and he said, "Hey, yeah, we're filming. We're filming till November." And I just I don't know because honestly, it would be a contract issue for me because there, I've got some other things in the works that I've been working on, and I don't want to limit myself. You know, right at the, at the now if I did it and and even if I won, I didn't get paid, but they wouldn't hold me to any other networks being able to use me, then I would do it. I'd do it 100%. Even if I won, I get no money, but I'm not held down by a contract that says I can't be on another network. I would totally right. do it right now. And, or if they said, hey, would you do like one where you get to team up with other knife makers? I'd be like, absolutely. I'd be like, hey, Jeff, let's go do Force and Fire. Yeah, you can't get me on the <laughs> show. You know, you said, you said I won't do it for the money. 
uh, call sign money bags over here. <laughs> you gotta fucking pay me, dude. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not going on that. Sh- I'm not going. I you know they stopped asking me a few years yeah. ago, and I remember they gave me they would every I would write a nice I would write a nice email. I really appreciate you reaching out, and I would I would be like never burn bridges. Write right. a nice email, and I actually forwarded the email they sent to me to Ben Snoor. And Ben got on it with the email that I had sent him. I was uh-huh. like, yeah, maybe you should do it. And that's what he got really? on. I remember when he was yeah, on it. I, pardon I me? remember him being on it. He's a good dude. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, my, actually, you know, the funny thing is talking about when you meet people with Forge and Fire. When I was at the Center for Metal Arts, I'd never made a knife. And all these people were saying, you should be on the show Forge and Fire. I'm like, what's this fucking show Forge and Fire? And I watched a YouTube of it. I watched, I think I watched the first one with Matt Parkinson. Then I watched the one with... Jonathan Porter. And now Jonathan Porter is one of my closest friends. I talk to him every other, you know, probably we talk once a week and we text all the time and it is really funny. And then Matt Parkinson, like I love Matt Parkinson and I teach classes at the shop and it is funny seeing like, you know, those relationships. And now, you know, so many people are in Forge and Fire and we send them all the best. And the funny thing is knife talk is I've kind of made a concerted effort not to root for anybody on Forge and Fire or even talk about it because we know so many people. It's just like, we're for you to get what you want out of Forge and Fire. Right. So that's that. But at the same time, it's like they, I'm going to be difficult. You're gonna, I'm, you get me on it. I, see, that's the thing is I don't, I don't, this I love. Like being on TV, being in YouTube videos, I don't. I don't. I did that one YouTube video because I thought, you know, we, we did it with uh, Condé Nast and Epicurious. And we thought it would be a great opportunity. And it was fun. Right. It was great. It was, it wasn't fun. It was fun for about. It was fun for the first half of the day, and then it got not fun very quickly. But it's not something I've wanted to do. I don't want to be. I don't want. I don't want any. Right. Like it doesn't interest me. Well, I, I so, agree with you because there's there's a lot of things that I've been offered that I just didn't want to do, and there's things that I really want to do, but it has to be kind of a certain way. You know, I was. I mean, I was offered a. I was offered a TV show for my mobile mobile forge, and. Talk to me about that because I know that you're going to be, you're working on videos and you're, I know you got some insides and outsides of the mobile forge. What's going on with you in the mobile forge? Well, I I was offered, I was offered a a show for it, but the network wanted to basically fake the stories and they wanted to like, oh, this guy fell down a well and, and this guy's going to be the police officer and you're going to, and you guys are going to go surprise this police officer and you're going to forge out a new iron gate for his front entrance or, or something. Cause it's not always right. about knives. And I'm like, hell no. The first time somebody sees it and says, Hey, that guy's not a police officer or that guy, that never really happened. Then everything I've ever tried to, to do for anyone has now become a lie. Right. And I was like, I just, no, there's no way, you know, I mean, this, this guy came all the way to North Carolina when I was doing um, a thing with some other friends, the uh, TV th- things just to come out there and, and drop a contract on my lap. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to do something like that. I mean, thanks, but no thanks guy. You know? So I decided that if I'm going to do this, I'm gonna do it for real. So I decided to just figure it out. And one of those ways of figuring it out is figuring out the hard way by just save up my money and budget it. And so I decided because the mobile forge, you know, people don't realize that it's a, you're costing a thousand dollars a day to be on the road between food, hotel, gas, time out of your shop, wear and tear on your truck and tires and all that stuff. It comes out to about a thousand dollars a day. And that doesn't even include 
you're getting paid for your time. So when I, I budgeted, you know, I budgeted some stuff and I talked to the family and was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to do a production knife or two to start help supplementing the cost. And then all the knives I make in the shop, I'm going to stop making a bunch of knives. I'm just going to start with, I'm going to start making really good knives because when I take my time and I do one at a time and I make something that I want to make, it comes out so much better. And then what if I can maybe use the rest of my money to self fund a couple of episodes and see how that goes. And I'm, in fact, I have got, when I'm done with here with recording with you, I've got a call, uh, the guy that, that I'm filming with and talk to him because we, we, we are so close to having the recipe down for the perfect pie. And it's just, it's so hard to do when you have something you want to get out there and messages you want to convey. And it's, I don't even know how to explain it, how hard that is. I think, I think I understand the fact, I think the hardest part about all this and the great thing about being able to do video on YouTube and content creation and all this is you're taking out a lot of the extra hands or the extra, you're taking most of the cooks out of the kitchen, yes. you know, and it's, it's your vision. Creative control. The, the problem is, is like when you start to go into these, I wrote it, I wrote a script that uh, this production company wanted me to start writing scripts for shows. And I came up with a great show, a great show, really good show. And before pandemic, and we were going to do a sizzle reel and everything like that. And my business partner told me, he's like, dude, just don't get in love with it. They're going to change the whole thing. And that's exactly what yeah. they did. Like they got brought it back to me. It didn't look anything like what I had suggested. That's why I, and it, and that's it's why I and the, That's the hardest part about all this is... And that why you can, you know, so many people like Jimmy DeResta and, and these guys who are really doing well or, you know, Honor Kaglar dies in every film. All these guys are doing so well. And Alex Steele mm-hmm. and, you know, you think about these guys who do YouTube videos is they have their own thing. And then they're being they're kind of like they have the ability to do their own thing. And, and there is something to that. But when you start to get in with these fucking people who they know better and this is how you do TV and don't worry about the, this and let's get you naked. Yeah. And it's 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 it's. It's it's tough, but I'm glad that you're sticking to what you want to do. That's yeah, the best I, part. That's why I stopped ta- even entertaining network um, television shows because I figure if I if I do a few episodes and and I and enough people see it and I put it out there and enough people see it, okay, and someone picks it up and says, "This is what we want you to do," and I that and they agree with me. Then I'll do it because I'm not a polished person. I'm I'm not a right. I'm not an actor. I'm just going to be me. I mean, if you've seen anything I've done on these live videos, I'm not saying that I'm a big guy, a big time person, or any of that because I'm not. I just but I I want to be genuine, no matter what. You're genuine. You are. That comes across. So, I mean, you are genuine. So when I do these, when it, when these shows, you when you see these episodes come out, you're going to say, "Yep, that's him." You're definitely not faking anything. You're definitely definitely not rehearsing or or scripted. So I'm just going to do it. And a worst case scenario, very worst case scenario is I had a cool experience for, you know, almost a year and I got to meet some really cool people and do this. And now because I can't afford to pay for being on the road out of pocket anymore, then I'm going to have a trailer sitting out here that is just going to sit there and maybe hold some tools and maybe I get to use it to move my shop next some in the future. But I'm hoping that 
once it gets out there that eventually either, you know, maybe it's a YouTube channel that's monetized that keeps, keeps it funded. So I get on the road and keep doing it and spotlighting other people, other people, other makers and, and other people. I met a, a guy, Pat Ivy this weekend who, who actually won a, like kind of a humanitarian award thing at winter strong, but his job is the strength and conditioning coach for one for one of the colleges up in Kentucky. And even though that's not a, Oh, I'm doing something for other people kind of a job. Most people would never look at it that way. But as I interviewed him while I was sharpening and cleaning his knife, I, I, we talked about it and I'm thinking, man, you're shaping these kids for their future because most of these kids, none of these kids get paid to be in the NCAA, but they are working their asses off to make it to the NFL. So they could just go the, the easy way and just, you know, steroids and get big and just crush people, or they can do it the way that you're teaching them and, and training them to do it and actually make it legitly without hurting themselves, you know, and, and people don't realize that even guys like that, and this guy's a big guy too himself, but guys like that are what this world needs is someone, he, he, you know, he's, he's not, he's not out there running a mission or or doing a, a 5013c somewhere he's working a job and paying bills and doing all the things he, he does for his family and living a normal life but the impact that he has on others i think people should see that i don't see i just don't see why that's not a thing in america where people that do things for others just because i don't stand up and go hey i did this doesn't mean that it wasn't done you know, and I, and I, and I don't do that. I won't sit there and try and raise my hand and take my camera out every time I do something nice for people. Just like, just like Pat didn't, he's just, he's just a normal guy, just like the rest of us. But I, but I wanted to say, Hey Pat, it's not, this is what you're doing. It's not that he was under, you know, demeaning what he did or any of that stuff. It's just that I, people get you so used to not seeing it that I want to start spotlighting that whether it's makers or vets or teachers or doctors, or first responders, or the guy at the counter at the convenience store that I went to, you know, that gave me 25 cents because I left my wallet in the truck. It doesn't matter. I don't know. Maybe I'm full of shit. Maybe this will all just be a big dream and I'll wake up, but it's just, I think it's possible. Joe Maynard. I don't think it's a dream. I think it's a reality. Thing, I got to tell you, <laughs> I got to tell you, Joe Maynard, that, that I think that there is a demand and an interest in what makers are doing. And I think that I've seen, we've got uh, congratulations of a friend, a friend of the show, Joe, uh, Jimmy DeResta's got a show coming up on Netflix. Awesome. I know Metal Shop Masters yeah. may not be coming back, but it was definitely the beginnings of something great. I think you're, I have some other friends who got some things with streaming services. I think that there's a demand and I think that it's just a question of just doing your thing, keep doing your thing and it's going to happen. Absolutely. You're, you're just fantastic. And, and what you do for, what you do for first responders and veterans is it's a it's a it's a greater calling and and i appreciate what you've done i know many 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 people appreciate what you've done and you're to be commended well man head down one foot in front of the other i'm gonna keep going no matter what you know 
Look at you. The Joe Maynard on Instagram, guys. Everybody, <laughs> go follow. This is this is uh, approach. This is penis 11. <laughs> I'm taking her in. We're done. We're getting out That's of right. here. We got you got to you got to follow the Joe Maynard on Instagram. Whatever he's doing, support him. He's there's a big thing. He's a great guy. He's doing things for the greater good, and I appreciate the hell out of you. I, Joe. I appreciate Thank you, you so much for coming. I really on. appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right, listen, guys, we got a lot of big things coming up, a lot of nice people coming up, interesting things. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to share this podcast on your stories, tell your friends about the Full Blast podcast. I need you to go where you listen, and I need you to give me a five-star review and give me and write something nice. Do, do me a favor. Last but not least, if you listen to this podcast and you listen to the end of the podcast, you'll hear this wonderful Axe Wax is sponsored by... That's our friend Leonardo Lee, a.k.a. Finite. Leonardo Lee is just, he's just become a new father. So on behalf of, of me and the Full Blast podcast, Leonardo, congratulations. And uh, your new father. And, and, and I want to, once again, guys, once again, Joe Maynard does a lot of great things. And he's going to do a lot more. I need you to support him however he needs support. I need you to follow him. I need you to watch what he's doing. And when he needs your help, I'm going to call upon you. I'm going to call upon you like the Godfather. <laughs> when, I need your, when, I, when I'm asking you for help, you don't deny me. You go help Joe Maynard. He's the best. And we're going to see you next week. Joe, thank you once again. Jeff, it's been a pleasure, buddy. I thank you so much. And oh, go to primitive. The website's primitive grinds. Primitivegrind.com. The link's in my primitive bio on, on Instagram. Go primitive. Go buy whatever he's whatever he's doing. Support Joe Maynard, the Joe Maynard on Instagram. Joe, you're the man, and I'll see you yes, again. Sir. The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, if you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.